You're listening to the Redeemer London podcast. For more information, visit our website at redeemerlondon.org. So um, we're looking at the last chapter of Moses' life today. Um, if you don't know me, if I've not met you before, my name's Rich. I'm part of the church here. And uh, we're very excited. This has been a great sermon series. We've been going through week after week looking at different parts of Moses' life in the book of Exodus. We have um, named the series Moses Made for More. We've been looking over and over in the series about how God has called Moses to great things and how God calls us to great things. This last chapter is in the book of Deuteronomy, and it's the last chapter of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 34. And there is loads and loads of great stuff from this chapter for us to learn. I'm excited for us to get into it. We've gone from Exodus 1, Exodus being the second book of the Bible, all the way through Exodus, and then skipped Leviticus and Numbers and got to this bit right at the end of Deuteronomy. We've heard in these sermons about how God has prepared Moses for great works. And then God has equipped Moses for great works. How God has called Moses. And then we've seen the work of God as well. God's faithfulness to his people. God's provision for his people. The way that God has led Moses. We've seen how Moses um, had faith. Um, Pete preached a few weeks ago a great sermon about in the wilderness. You remember this? Moses having faith, being the guy who is the most obedient. And then we had a sermon a couple of weeks ago that I did about the face-to-face relationship with Moses, that Moses had with God. There is so much we have learned from Moses, but also, hopefully, you'll have got the impression as we've gone along that lots and lots of the story of Moses in Exodus points forward to the greater Moses, to the real hero of the story, the real hero of history, Jesus. And so today we're going to look a little bit again at Moses and his life and see how that points to Jesus. In this passage, (laughs) Moses is 120 years old. He is really getting on. Um, You can split Moses' life, if you like, into three 40s. So for 40 years, Moses was in uh, Pharaoh's temple. The next 40 years, Moses was a shepherd um, in Midian. And then the last 40 years, he's the leader of two million people. Quite a change across those 40 years. Somebody said, 40 years Moses thought he was a somebody. The next 40 years, he discovered that he was a nobody. And the last 40 years, he realized that God can use a nobody. And hopefully you've got the theme as we've gone through this sermon, that God calls us to more as well. God is always calling and speaking over our lives, I can use a nobody. I can use someone like you for great things. Okay, so we're in the book of Deuteronomy. We haven't looked at any other verse in Deuteronomy, so it would be remiss of me not to explain what the book of Deuteronomy is doing in the Bible. I'm not sure many people would say, Deuteronomy, that is my fave. That is absolutely the first book I go to. I'm just looking for some encouragement. I'm there in Deuteronomy every morning. Maybe some of us haven't even necessarily read it all the way through, or some of us might not have read any of it. Um, Deuteronomy is kind of Moses' last three sermons. Very good sermons. And Moses also writes two kind of poems, a blessing over the people, because he knows his life's coming to an end, and this amazing song over the people as well, right before this chapter. Um, So that's what Moses is doing there in Deuteronomy, and the last chapter starts like this. Then Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo, to the top of Pisgah, which is opposite Jericho. And the Lord showed him all the land. Now, I'll pause there. All the land we're talking about is the promised land. 
Moses has led the people into the wilderness. They've been there for 40 years, and we'll see why in a minute. But the land that is talked about here is all of the land that's the inheritance for these two million people. And the Lord said to him, This is the land of which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to your offspring. I have let you see it with your eyes, but you shall not go over there. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. And he, that is God, buried him in the valley of the lands. That's a pretty good funeral, you and God. In the, the land of Moab, opposite Beth Poer. But no one knows the place of his burial to this day. Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eye was undimmed and his vigor unabated. Not a great sentence. And the people of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days. Then the days of weeping and mourning for Moses were ended. And Joshua, the son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom. For Moses had laid his hands on him. So the people of Israel obeyed him and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. And there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. None like him for all the signs and the wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land, and for the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror, that's terror for the Egyptians, that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. There is so much great stuff in this chapter for us to look at. We can look at individually what's God calling us to. We can look at us as a church, as a body, as a family. We're going to touch on things that span the course of Moses' life and should span the course of our lives as individuals and as a church. And we're going to look into eternity. But first, I'd love us to pray. Father, we want to be open to your voice this morning. As we come, we realize that Moses here hears your voice in his last chapter as he has his whole life. And we want to be those who hear your voice again this morning. Why don't you just open yourself up to God? God, we just surrender this time, this passage, these words to you. Come, draw out of us a response in our hearts as individuals and as a church. Amen. Great. So, Deuteronomy 34. First thing I've written down here is, he's 120 and he's climbing a mountain. Like, that's pretty good. Just as a, as a base point, Moses is doing pretty well. I've summed the, the three sections of this passage up into three sections because, you know, it's a sermon and I'm preaching and that's kind of what you normally do. So we're going to look at Moses and his promised land, Moses and his mission, and Moses and his title. So we're going to start with the promised land. It's really good for us to, as we come to a Bible passage, ask some questions of it, isn't it? We shouldn't just sit there and just let it go past us. We need to be asking questions, imagining ourselves in that scene. So here we go, Redeemer. We are at the top of a mountain. We are looking out over an amazing scene. In fact, Moses, as he looks over the promised land, is 50 or 60 miles deep. So God is showing him like supernaturally the whole thing. There's no way that Moses however good his eyesight was, is going to be able to see 60 miles. So we are there, and God is showing us the survey, this beautiful scene in front of us of the promised land. What's the question that we would ask? Why can't I go in? Don't you think that's the question that Moses is asking? Don't you think that's the question that this passage poses? Moses is there, and God's like, look at all this amazing land. 
Your offspring, these guys, the next generation, they're going into the promised land, but you won't. It's good for us to ask these questions of it, and hopefully I can give you a little bit of an answer. For 40 years, Moses and the people have been in the wilderness waiting to go in. And there's two elements to this. So, firstly, the people of God for 40 years haven't been able to enter because, to begin with, God said, go in. The promised land, you go, claim it. Get in there. It's your place. It's your promised land. It's the good thing that I'm giving to you. It's this perfect place. Go and get stuck in. But the people, they didn't believe God that he was going to give them the land. They sent out some scouts, if you know the story. These scouts come back, and they kind of hype up the bigness of the task. They say, oh, there's some really tall guys there. We can't do that. Oh, there's some really big walls. We can't get past those. And they exaggerate how big the problem is and diminish how big their God is. God says, just go on, get in there. And God actually says, you know what, I'm going to draw a line in the sand then. If you guys don't believe me, I'll wait for the next generation, and they'll go into the promised land. So that's why this generation hasn't gone in. In fact, God says to Moses, how long will they not believe in me? Talking about the people. In spite of all the signs and all the wonders that I've done among them. It's like, come on. I mean, look at the story so far. There's like a parting of the Red Sea, and there's all these amazing miracles and all these plagues. You don't think I'm powerful enough for these big guys and these big walls. Really, guys, just get involved, and they don't. The second element to it, then, is that Moses isn't to enter the promised land. Even though Moses believed in God, yeah, we can take this land. The reason for that we read in a combination of Numbers and book Numbers and Deuteronomy is this. God had called Moses to be his man, his representative, his guy on earth. And Moses, therefore, had a responsibility to follow God's commands exactly. Now, Moses, if you know much of the story, is in charge of two million people who have got a pretty terrible track record of of obeying God's commands exactly. Like, literally, whilst he's up the mountain writing the commandments, he's got them all there. They're like, ah, yeah, don't worry about that. Like, we'll worship some other gods. So they've got a pretty terrible track record. So God needs Moses and calls Moses to be the perfect example, following the commands exactly to the letter. But there's a scene that we read of a few chapters before this where... God says to Moses, here's a rock. Speak to the rock with your words. Command the rock, and out of it, water will come, and I'll provide. That is what I'm telling you to do. That's a specific command. But in front of all the people, as an act of disregard for God's specific words, he hits the rock with his stick, with his staff. Because ages ago, God told him to do that in another time. And he does it. But then God says, you know, it's so important that you don't have a lazy attitude towards my commands. It's really very important that you don't just say, my commands, the stuff I'm saying is just like guidelines, you know, it'll be all right. I've told you to do this in front of everybody, even though you're my chosen person to do exactly what I've said. As an example, as a leader, you've gone against me in disobedience. I'm also going to draw a line in the sand for you and say, the promised land Everybody's going to be led there by Joshua, by your servant. And so that's the situation. That's why Moses can't go into the promised land. That's why the people haven't for 40 years gone into the promised land. Okay, back to this scene. Everybody, we're at the mountain, yeah? Looking out. Amazing. We can see the whole thing. It's looking great. Now Moses knows he's not going to the promised land, but 
as we read this passage, is he complaining? Is he saying, oh, come on, God, just give me one chance, just like one day in the promised land before I die? No, I think we read by this passage that Moses knows that God knows what he's doing. He's standing there saying, you know what? Joshua can lead the people in. The next generation can go in. And you get the sense from this, he's up there with God. God's speaking to him. God's going to bury him. God's already told him this is where your life's going to end. He knows he's also getting an upgrade, doesn't he? He's there like, you know what? I think I'm going to get my own little promised land now. Sure, these guys are going to go and get the earthly land, but he knows in his heart, I've walked with God. God's here with me. God's chosen my days, and he's saying, this is it. He's standing there going, you know what? I think I'm going to get my own promised land. He's not too depressed about it, I don't think. Okay, we know we have people in the church often, and we really hope that we often have people in the church who are kind of looking into Christianity. So maybe you might be here and you feel like, you know, I wouldn't necessarily say I'm a Christian. I'm kind of more looking in from the outside. I've got some friends, one friend in particular, who... The main reason he came to church the first time because he was worried about the afterlife. He was thinking, what happens when I die? He was quite curious, and he was a little bit worried. <laughs> he was like, I'm not sure I know the answer, and I should probably find out before I die. This guy was like 20, so, you know, real forward thinking. And uh, we're aware that it's good for us as a church to answer questions of life for people who maybe don't know what the Bible already teaches about it. So we're talking about Moses and the end of his life, I thought... What the heck? Let's talk about it for a few minutes. So what do you think, maybe if you're not a Christian here, what do you think does happen after you die? Maybe you've not thought about it before. As Christians, if we really read the Bible, we really follow Jesus' teaching, we don't believe, that, we don't believe the myth that good people go to heaven and bad people go to hell. We should bust that myth right now. The Bible doesn't divide everybody into people who've done good things and people who've done bad things. If you're a Christian here, hopefully you know that. (laughs) The Bible makes a distinction and says everybody's got good in them, everybody's done bad things. But some people are back into right relationship with God and are forgiven. And so the division then is there is an afterlife and people who are forgiven people who have been forgiven by God, come back into right relationship with him, they will spend eternity, this is what Jesus teaches, with God. And with God means everything that God is. That means knowing acceptance, knowing love, knowing significance, knowing fulfillment. That means in heaven we're going to have fun, we're going to have joy, we're going to have peace, we're going to know rest. And it means nothing of what God isn't. That means eternity without sickness and without pain and without death. God's not really about death. He's about life. And so if you're wondering what does the Bible teach, the Bible teaches that a little bit like Moses when he's disobeyed God, all of us have walked away from God. I love the line in that song earlier on. You had a plan from the start to turn me around, winning my heart. For those of us who are Christians like me, I'd say God's won my heart. He's turned me around, and now I can be sure of my afterlife, that it's going to be with God and all that God is and nothing that God isn't. But the Bible does teach then that if you're not in a place of right relationship with God, if you haven't been following him, if you're not a Christian, then the opposite is true. You can't then spend eternity with God. You spend eternity with all the things that God isn't. 
An absence of God means loneliness. An absence of God means no fun. An absence of God means no love. And that's the picture that the Bible talks about. Okay, so if you're here and you're thinking, I'm just inquiring, hopefully that's helpful to know what the Bible teaches. I'd say to you today, if you'd like to know more about what it is to come into a right relationship with God, if today you'd like to ask a few questions, then maybe ask the person that you came with. If you're brave enough later, after the sermon's finished, I'm around, I've got a lanyard, Mark's got a lanyard, there are other people with these on. If you want to just ask a few questions and say, what did you mean when you said you can be sure of what's going to happen after you die? I'd love to chat to you. There's loads of people in the church who'd love to, tell, love to tell you more about Jesus and about what we've been singing about today. Okay, so we've looked at the promised land and Moses' promised land, which is eternity with God and what that means. Let's look a little bit more then at Moses and his mission. So Exodus and Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the story of Moses, we read across four books of the Bible, but they're part of a big story, aren't they? They're part of history, what I like to say, his story. And we're looking at this passage, but Moses is actually involved in a big mission. God has called him, spoken to him at the burning bush, given him power, called him to bring the people out of Egypt. And it's part of a big plan that God is enacting over the course of history. And you and me are part of the same story. The big mission of God. God calls Moses and God calls us to be part of this history. There is a big calling for us as a church to bring God's kingdom to earth, to bring God's way, to bring his influence to Ealing, to the places that we work, to the places that we live, to our families and to everyone around us. In a way, God is calling us to bring his kingdom to earth so that other people around us, people outside this building, people outside of God's kingdom, if you like, ask the question, how is it that you know the real God? How is it that you've got a God that's so close to you? And in Deuteronomy, Moses, as part of his wisdom, knowing that this is part of a big story, he says a few chapters earlier, people outside will say, what great nation is there that has a God so near to it? Do you see what he's saying? People are going to ask, how do you have such a near God? All the other gods out there, well, they don't speak to us. They're not close to us. Moses wants people to come and know the true God, the one true God. And back to this scene then, Moses standing, looking out. He sees this big scene, and we're imagining ourselves there with him. He has the assurance that although he has done all that he can for God's big mission, The next phase, God's going to do without him. As Christians, it's good for us to know sometimes that we are called up to this big plan, and we're going to do everything we can, aren't we? We're going to do everything we can to be on this big mission, reaching people in Ealing, doing everything we can at work, at home, in our places of influence. But it's good for us to remember it's God's story. It's God's plan. Moses is able to stand there in confidence saying, the people are going into the promised land with Joshua. God's going to carry on this amazing story without me. It might look a little bit to him like his role is over, but Jesus is taking over. The end of his life actually isn't this perfect promised land that he goes to into on earth. 
There's somebody else in the Bible who, at the end of his life, you might think, this looks a little bit strange. It looks like he's done everything he can, but then the story's finishing a little bit strange, like he doesn't get all the fruit of all of his work. You could say that, I guess, about Moses. He's done all this work. He's worked hard. He's been faithful. He's brought the people to the edge of the promised land, but he never sees the fruit. Jesus, at the end of his life, I guess people were around saying, he's done all this great stuff as part of the big mission of God, but he's died. He's not got to see the fruit. But if you see the big picture of what Jesus has done, he's the hero of the story. Actually, the fruit comes when he then is resurrected from the dead, and he's the key pivotal moment in this big story. And if Moses steps back and looks across this scene, he can be sure, I've played my part faithfully, and the fruit, the actual outcome, the end of the story, I can leave that one to God. God's going to take it on another stage. I'm part of a bigger story. Moses and Jesus both knew that they were to be obedient to their part of the story, to their mission. But that the fulfillment, the fruit of the whole thing, that's God's responsibility. Okay, here's a question for you then. If you're a Christian here, what do you think success is in mission, in evangelism, I guess? What do you think success is? You might think, I've been plugging away for ages. I've been speaking to these people about Jesus. Am I being successful? Am I seeing the fruit? Am I seeing the end results? I want to encourage you that Jesus tells a story of the talents. In this story, um, a rich man goes away, leaving some money with three different people. And he comes back to see whether there's interest, whether they've got any fruit, if you like, from their labor. One guy's got none. But then there's one guy who was given two lots of money, two talents. And he, if you know the story, gives another two back to the master and says, this is what you've given me. I've been faithful with it. I've done my best and I'll give you two back. The fruit of his work is two. This other guy's given five. And if you know anything about the story, he then gives five back. His fruit is five. Now, surely five is more than two, yeah? We should be looking at that story saying, this guy's been much more fruitful. He's done much more. But what's Jesus' take on the story? Jesus says that for both the guy with two and the guy with five, the master says, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little, and I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. So do you see, Jesus doesn't say, the guy who came back with five, he was better. We should all be saying, as soon as I see immediate fruit in my life, oh, I'm doing better than before. No, he says, with what you're given, be faithful. Everybody here has got talent. Everybody here has got passion. Everyone here has got some skill. Everyone here has got a a story, a conversation. Everybody here has got friends and an area that they can influence. And what does God say? Does he say that you'll see all the fruit in your lifetime? Does he say that you'll see the promised land in terms of lots and lots of people being saved? No, he says, if you are faithful, if you're obedient, If you, with what I've given you, are faithful, then I'm going to say, well done, good and faithful servant. And leave the ultimate fruit, leave that up to God as part of his big story. Is this making some sense? Great. One other time that Jesus talks about that is the sower. We see the parable of the sower. Hopefully most people know this story. He's talking, God is talking about obedience. You know, are we obedient people? Are we listening to the word of God? And the person whose life is like good soil, it says... 
he will see reaping, if you like, 30-fold or 60-fold or 100-fold. Again, it's a little bit like looking at fruit. How many people have been saved or how much have you done in your life? What's success in mission? Is it 100? Is it 60? Is it 30? But Jesus doesn't say it's much better for it to be 100. He says, be good soil. The outcome of that story isn't that we should be obsessed with numbers and what our fruit is necessarily, but is that we should be faithful and obedient to what God has called us to. Does that make sense? So I think the reason I've gone into all this is I think Moses is looking, thinking, I would have imagined that I would have seen the fruit to all of my labor in the promised land. In fact, it even says there's really big juicy fruits in there. So, you know, literally. But he has got confidence standing there saying, you know what? The end of my role is to say I've been as faithful and obedient as I can. And God does the rest. God's going to take these other people into the promised land. Billy Graham. Hands up if you know who Billy Graham is. I think more people than that, but people, you know falling asleep, so hands on up. So um, Billy Graham was a great evangelist. If you're going to say what's success in evangelism, I'd probably say Billy Graham's a pretty good model. I'd, go for, I, I'd take a Billy Graham reaping, if you like. Billy Graham once had said to his staff at the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association, many of you, and these you, his staff he's talking about, their jobs were to put up signs and to put envelopes, um, cards inside of envelopes and invitations and do the administration. He said, many of you will have greater reward in heaven than me. And the staff are like, "Mm, yeah, I think you're just being nice to us. That doesn't actually sound like it's very realistic. But he says, I mean it. The reason is that God rewards faithfulness, not fruitfulness. It's good for us as a church, not just as individuals, to say, let's go again on mission. Let's be part of God's big story over history that Moses was part of, that Jesus was part of, and is still part of, and that we're part of now by playing our part faithfully, by going again this week and saying, can I be a faithful witness? Can I be, to the people around me, a good example of how my life's been changed by the one true God? And then God will judge me to be faithful as a servant. Fruit, that's up to him. Okay, great. Last part then, Moses and his title. So Moses is called in the passage, the servant of the Lord. You know, going back to that story of the talents, what's the the sentence that the master says to the, the guys when they come back? He says, well done, good and faithful servant. We're going to spend this next few minutes looking at this word, servant. So Moses is kind of summed up in his last chapter of the last book that's about Moses in this word. Moses, the servant of the Lord. He could have been called all kinds of things, couldn't he? Could have been the powerhouse Moses with all the amazing miracles. Could have been Moses of Red Sea fame. But no, he's called Moses, the servant of the Lord. Abraham was called the servant of the Lord. David was called the servant of the Lord. Jacob was called the servant of the Lord. But more than anybody else in the whole of the Bible, Moses is described as the servant of the Lord. John Wesley, when he comments on this, says, here, in this passage in Deuteronomy, he is called the servant of the Lord. And it was more his honor to be the servant of the Lord than to be king in Israel. What Wesley's saying is, it is better for Moses to have got to the end of his life and say, I'm God's servant, than to go into the promised land and be sitting there on a throne, maybe with a cigar, saying, you know what? I've done it all. It's all about me. Moses ends his life 
as a servant of the Lord. Here he is on his mountain. Let's imagine again we're up on this mountain looking over this amazing scene. You can see the promised land. Here he is. And how does the Bible describe him? Eyes open. Vigor unabated. I don't use the word unabated very often, so I'm going to say that a couple of times. Vigor unabated. Here is Moses, 120 years old. And how does the Bible describe him? A servant who is ears open. He's hearing God's voice. Eyes open. What's God doing? Unabated vigor to be a servant of God. I would like that to be true of me. That in my final chapter in life, you could turn around and say, you know what? You're still ears open to God. You're still eyes open to God. You're still heart soft to be a servant of God. I'd love that to be said of me. Moses' journey was of service to God, of obedience. Moses is saying over and over and over again in his life, God, what are you doing now? What's the next step for me? I'm your servant. You see the humility that Moses has over and over in his life. He's obedient. He's listening to God's voice. He's obeying what God said. And he's saying, right, my life is not about my story. It's not about my fame. It's about your story. How can I serve you in a big story? How can I serve you in your big mission? That reminds me of some things that Jesus said. Jesus says in Luke 2, I'm here to do my father's business. Jesus doesn't say it's about my fame here. You know, I'm here to sit on the throne with my cigar. No, he says, I'm here to do what God wants me to do, what the father's calling me to do. Jesus says in John 6, I came to do the will of him that sent me. How easy would it have been for Jesus to say, I'm going to do what I want here. But no, he models perfect humility, perfect service. He is the perfect servant of the Lord, Jesus, in saying, your will be done. He says in Mark 10, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Redeemer, we are called to be a church full of individuals who have got a humble, servant-hearted attitude. And we are called to be a church in this borough that says, how can we serve? The story isn't about us. The big story isn't about us as individuals or as a church. It's about God. I would love it, and I mean this, I would love it that in the last chapter of your life, you're described as eyes open. God, what are you doing? How can I get involved? I'm here to do my father's business. Ears open. God, what are you saying? Because it's your story. I'm all about what you want. That humility all the way through our lives. And then this unabated vigor where we're like, God, here's my everything. Here's all I've got. I'm not here for my glory. I'm not here for my status. I'm not here for my throne. But that we would be a church full of individuals who say, it's your story. I'm your servant. But more than that, I think I'd love us to be described as a church in years to come and now as a church who keep asking the question, how can we serve? We're in a borough that needs Jesus. We're in a borough that needs food. We're in a borough that needs help and practical help. We're in a borough that in all kinds of ways we can serve. Wouldn't it be great that people come to this church and they say, it's not a church that's really about them. 
They're looking out. They're saying, how can we serve? Eyes open as a church. We're saying, where can we get involved? Ears open. Well, what have we heard that's needed? Unabated vigor to say, we'll be the servants of God in this borough. Wouldn't that be great? Isn't that an ideal scenario that we model something of the humility of Jesus in saying, we don't want Redeemer to be famous in this area. We want Jesus to be famous. We want God to be famous. We want to be part of the big story. And we want to say with open hearts, how can we get involved? The Hebrew word for, for servant here means someone with God-given authority as the accredited messenger of the Lord. I want to be that kind of servant. Someone with the authority to go out as an accredited messenger of the Lord. At the end of the story then, the final climax for Moses isn't with him sitting on a throne. It's him up this mountain. This is the end of the whole series, the whole life. Moses at the top of a mountain with his father God, described as having face-to-face relationship with God, hearing God's voice, knowing that God's big story is carrying on past his role. It's a servant and his king in a moment alone. 21st century greatness is all about the spoils, isn't it? It's all about the success. It's all about how high up you get in your career. It's all about you and your fame. The big finish. But not for Moses. He's safe and secure in the knowledge that God's got a big story that he's part of and that he's lived his life as a servant. I'm just going to put up this quote by a guy called C.J. Mahaney. C.J. Mahaney has written this super, super helpful book on humility, which if you read it, goodness, it's a book that every Christian should read. I've read it a few times and it just, wow, it really reveals pride in your life. He says this, As sinfully and culturally defined, as in in the West, pursuing greatness looks like this. Individuals motivated by self-interest, self-indulgence, and a false sense of self-sufficiency pursue selfish ambition for the purpose of self-glorification. That's what greatness looks like in the West. I think that's true. Contrast that with the pursuit of the true greatness as biblically defined. Serving others for the glory of God. This is the genuine expression of humility. This is the true greatness as the Savior defined it. If you want to be great, be a servant of all. That's what Jesus teaches. Moses is standing knowing he's served God. Serving doesn't just mean doing little things, although it often does. It often means helping the one, loving the unlovely. But also here, serving means the power of Moses going as an authoritative messenger for God. So serving can be doing powerful things and influence as well. But he has a servant heart to the end. So that's Moses. So that's the end of the series. We get to Deuteronomy 34 and we close the book on Moses. I want us to respond in two ways. It's not good for us, is it, to read from the Bible, to hear from the Bible, and just to sit and say, yeah, that's good. The Bible is a different type of book to that. The Bible is a book that's calling us. 
through the work of the Spirit, is drawing out a response from us. So I want us to respond in two ways. Firstly, in a second, I'm going to ask us all to stand up. What I've said about us being a corporate, being a family, being on mission to serve this borough, I'd love us to stand, put our hands in the air like this, which Moses does at a few points in his life, and as I pray, just to commit ourselves again as a church to an attitude of humility in this borough, to an attitude of God, what are you doing? We are here to do your business. Humility to God and service to this borough. I think that can be a powerful thing for us all to stand together and say, yes, we want to do this together. And secondly then, we're going to break bread and we're going to respond personally. Here's the challenge for us as individuals. It's that's easy to hear a message like this and say, yeah, I know that serving and doing what God wants rather than what I want is the right thing to do, but then to return to whatever way of life we've been living. So what I'd like us to do is to spend a few moments just asking God, God, how can I serve you this week? I've been praying about it and there are some people in my life that I know they're not the first people I choose to hang out with. But a way that I can serve them in this borough is to love them. It's to go and serve them. Go and ask, how are you doing? Even though they might not be the people that I'd first of all go to. But there might be other ways that God speaks to you and says, this is a way that you can serve me. If you would just show humility and open yourselves up, if you just offer up your time and your treasure and your talents, that as an individual, God will call you, even today, specifically speak to you about a way that you can serve him in your area or the way that you can serve him in this next little season. I do believe that God wants to speak to us about how we can be more Moses and Jesus-like in our attitude of, I want to serve you first. So why don't we stand and we'll respond corporately. The band's going to come up and play. Okay, when we respond together now with our arms in the air, I'll lead us. I'd love, as I pray this prayer, there to be a sense together of yes and amen. If you want to say yes and amen as we go through, feel free. It's okay to be Pentecostal, that's fine. But also, if you've got an area that you live in, if you've got an area of influence that you have in this borough, if you're involved in food bank, if you're involved in student work, if you're involved in kids' work, if you're going to be a part of the afternoon, have that in mind as you say, yes, God. As a church, we're going to respond together to go on your big mission. Okay. Sometimes a physical thing makes a big difference spiritually, just in ourselves. So I'm going to say, why don't we just put our hands in the air like this? Father God, we want to have an attitude like your son. Of we are here to do your business. We want to have an attitude as a church that says you've put us in Ealing for a reason. You have put us in our houses, in our flats, in our blocks for a reason. You have put us here in 2014, 15, 2015 for a reason. And as a church, we together now, we just want to commit ourselves to doing your work in this borough. We commit ourselves to a servant attitude that says, how can we meet the needs of this borough? 
we think of people in our minds right now, our neighbors, our friends, our students, our young people, our professionals, the poor, the lonely, the sick. We say, God, here we are. Use us. Use us. Send us. Draw us up as a church into your big mission and send us out again today into this borough as your servants. Just keeping our hands in the air. God, we just want to pray for anybody who comes into contact with the church in the next season to come in and suddenly know these people aren't about themselves or their own glory. They're about Jesus Christ and how they can serve. Oh God, we want that to be true of us. That as Redeemer matures, we are more and more eyes open to service. More and more ears open to your voice. More and more vigor unabated in our servant-hearted attitude. We ask it all in the name of Jesus. Have your glory and your fame and your name as the first name on every lip in Ealing. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Great. And now the band are going to play and Mark's going to lead us in how we're going to do communion. But I would really encourage you, we've got time, it's not even 12 o'clock yet, would you believe? We've got time to wait on God and to ask the questions for ourselves. Where can I serve you this week? Where can I be a servant this week? How can I humble myself more and give you all the glory more this week, this season, this next little while? Please, guys, let's have ears open to hear what God wants to say. Eyes open to what he's showing us as individuals. I do really believe, as I was preparing this, God wants to speak to some of us about specific ways he's calling service out of us. He's calling humility out of us.